Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 305 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Greetings. Jason Sweat. Hello. Brian Hogan. Hi, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Just a quick reminder that the CFP is still open for Ruby Remote Comp if you want to speak at an online conference. We also have a special guest this week, and that's Ken Collins. Hi, y'all. You want to give us a brief introduction, Ken? Sure. Um, my name is Ken. Uh, I usually go by Metaskills on everything else on the internet, except for PlayStation. I don't know who that guy is, but I'm really looking for him or her. Uh, <laughs> I've been working for Ruby for well over eight years. I am the author of the SQL Server adapter for Active Record, and I also author a gem called Tiny TDS, which is used to connect to SQL Server uh, and other miscellaneous things. I run the Ruby, the Ruby user group here in the Hampton Roads area. And uh, I work for a company called Custom Inc., which makes T-shirts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've printed T-shirts with them before. So I think they had a booster.com or something like that that we did. Booster.com is one of our companies, and uh, we do that for fundraising. And I've definitely bought the uh, the Ruby Rogue shirt as well as a few anchors. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, just to jump right into this, um, we we talked a little bit with uh, Carlos uh, Chacon a few weeks ago about SQL Server and just what you can do with it. What I'm a little bit curious about is when you look at a system like uh, SQL Server and you're thinking, okay, I want to plug my Ruby app into this. Where do you even start? Like, where do you start with writing a driver for a database system that, at least until recently, only ran on Windows and, you know, stuff, 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 right? Yeah, I think the uh, the good way to answer that question is maybe to sort of go back in time. There's uh, what we do today, and there was what sort of happened uh, in the past. When I first started working with SQL Server. It was a ritual that really involved a lot of magic and a lot of moving parts to connect to SQL Server. And there were superfluous gems uh, going all the way down to Ruby ODBC uh, that talked to another gem called DBD. And you basically had to compile FreeDS a certain way. You had to link in Unix ODBC. You had to compile Ruby ODBC to link to those other two things. And then you had to have a whole bunch of magic connection strings and you were lucky if it worked yeah and when you got it working you left it that way <laughs> we, we did we did all of those things and they were it's exactly as ken explains it, it you, once you get it working you walk away I, I think i had something one time that had to talk to a sql server and i think i used jruby because i could just use the java odbc hookups mm-hmm. and it was simpler yeah they're um the, usually after you do it, your first uh, your first achievement is just to write a blog post, right? It's like, that's what you have to do. And, and then you become one of the many out there that tell you, do this, do this, but then do that. And I was certainly one of those people. Nice. Do you want to give us a brief explanation of what ODBC is? I know that there are a few people who either haven't been around very long or are new that probably don't know what the term is. Uh, well, let's see. I believe it stands for Open Database Connection. If it doesn't, they really missed a naming opportunity. But uh, it is there's a gem called Ruby ODBC, which I believe ODBC in general uh, is just your basic 
open standard for connecting to databases. Uh, Ruby ODBC, I think it was written by a gentleman named Christian Werner. I might be wrong on that, but it is a Ruby C extension that links to an ODBC library of your choice. In most cases, I believe that's Unix ODBC, and it will talk that protocol to the database. So with uh, Christian, though, I haven't... To date, I don't know if Ruby ODBC is on GitHub or where it was hosted, but when I initially did SQL Server work going back to, I believe, 20, I really can't remember, back when Rails 2.1 was uh, really brand new, the uh, there was no online presence for Ruby ODBC. Interesting. Yeah, it really made it really hard to find stuff. As Ken alluded to, you, you, you pretty much had to find some kind soul who wrote a blog post about how to get anything working. Mm -hmm. And then the, uh, so going along the timeline, as uh, things eventually moved forward, the idea was is that um, we would need to connect to the database in a different manner. There were ways of using, um, like, let's see, I believe at one point in time when Iron Ruby and Mac Ruby were hot topics, when Apple was putting money into Ruby uh, and Microsoft followed suit with Iron Ruby, we allowed another connection mode in the SQL Server adapter called, I believe, ADONet. And that just basically delegated this low-level functions, maybe about two or three of them, that would basically talk to the raw connection and you would be able to have an alternate connection mode. And then eventually where we come along today is the gem called TinyTDS. And honestly, it wasn't my idea to write it. There's a gentleman named, um, let me think, uh, Eric Byrne, who I believe now is on the Ember core team, said, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we just bypassed all those things and just talked right to the database directly uh, with a protocol called DB Library, which uh, is the low-level over-the-wire protocol that Microsoft acquired when they acquired Sybase. And that's what TinyDTS does. So thanks to ThoughtBot, they wrote a blog article, uh, and I think I can mention this in the show notes too, is that inspired me uh, as a Ruby developer, first and foremost, I had, this was my first language, and I had never really read or done C before to, to learn a little bit of C and to sort of glue these things together. And let me tell you, it was really, really hard. But I, I kind of enjoy those points where you just make yourself feel really dumb and then you kind of come up with something that looks clever. So I, one of the questions that I have for you is the situation I was in was we had a, we had a bunch of, of SQL servers and we weren't really allowed to bring in other database engines. But mm -hmm. we, we had demonstrated that Rails worked and there was enough uh, – there were like you know five other people in the world doing – that same sort of thing. And so it was really hard to sort of find the people that were doing this kind of thing. What, what caused you to, to be involved in this needing, needing, was it a need to do stuff with SQL server where you were at too, or was it a different need? That's exactly it. I, I got my first job programming at a company called decisive in Richmond. Uh, a good friend of mine that was also from the Hampton roads area, uh, named Mark Embriaco, uh, said, hey, you know, I saw, he was a friend of mine, he, he knew I was kind of into Unix and, and just, and generally learning more. Uh, I got into learning Ruby and he got me my first job as a programmer at this company and all the data was on SQL Server. Uh, the specific vertical markets they worked with were the heavy truck industry. So Mac, Volvo, International. Uh, I can't drive on the highway today without looking at a truck and calling it out. Is that a Freightliner? Is that a Peterbilt, et cetera? 
and everything was just on SQL Server. And that Rails app started pre-Rails 1.0. And by the time we got to Ruby 2 or Rails 2, they had dropped the SQL Server adapter. And at some point, I really liked my job and things were just getting ridiculously hard. Most of my day was spent solving, trying to talk to the database. And my employers were nice enough to say, look, you know, if uh, this is my idea, I was like, I, was like, I just want to make this good. I want to make it so that I don't have to think about this. I can think about the business problems. And that started where, you know, after Rails 1.2.6, they dropped the SQL Server adapter from Core. And then it languished in these forks of forks. So basically, these other engineers would say, okay, I've got a fork of the adapter. And I hit F5 in my browser, and this was fixed. So here it is, right? Here's the SQL Server adapter. And take that and multiply it by 100. And that's what the fragmentation looked like. Yeah, it was really, it was really kind of an odd situation at the time because you had all these people who, you know, you had Rails Core saying nobody's using SQL Server, so we're not going to support this anymore, which just sort of uncovered the amount of people that were actually using SQL Server when you mm -hmm. looked at all the forks that came out. Isn't that right, so isn't that very true of a lot of things though? Nobody's using this, so you take the feature away. I mean, businesses do this too. They pull it out, and then people come back and go. Oh, or their CEO, right? They didn't know the CEO was using that obscure feature. Mm -hmm. It could be uh, it could be anything in an app. It could be legacy redirects to your app that you never knew people were using before. Yep. So it 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 was a pain, and um, I think when Rails two one was released, that's when the SQL Server adapter had its home. Um, I never put it under my username MetaSkills on GitHub. I always gave it an identity of its own. Uh, one day I thought I would maybe get away from it. I actually haven't used SQL Server for my job since for maybe uh, six years now, but I still love maintaining it. I still uh, go out of my way to make sure that it's working for people and and try to know as much as I can about it. Good for you, man. You know, that's hard. You know, I, I fall into this trap, too. A lot of times when I publish a gem, you know, I made a gem to solve a need that I need. And once I don't have that need anymore, that gem kind of just dies out. But, mm -hmm. you know, great on you for still supporting it, even though you don't actively use it. I do have one gem like that. It's called Less Rails. And I let that one die. Well, I have a few that have kind of languished, but the thing is, is that the problem space hasn't changed and the APIs that it connects to haven't changed. Mm -hmm. And so I've gotten like two pull requests over the last several years that I have not touched it. And both of them are like cleaning up documentation and stuff. So sometimes you can get away with that just because, you know, it's not really a moving target, but SQL Server is definitely a moving target. It is, and it's it's a fun gem to maintain. I found no better way to follow active record to be involved with the community than to maintain a, a gem like that. So I have to ask because I'm curious. Uh, they recently released SQL Server for Linux. Has that changed things for Tiny TDS at all? It's a dream. Um, it fundamentally never changed any of the code in the adapter or um, SQL uh, or Tiny TDS. There was, um, I have to go back into, I can post the link in the show notes to Microsoft invited myself and uh, Sean Griffin to what they had called an open uh, database platform exchange. And they, they had a couple people from the Python community there. And 
they didn't tell us, but all the way back then, at least in 2015, they were working on SQL Server for Linux. And the things that we were asking for, they knew they were working on, but they just really couldn't tell us about it. But we did get access to the early preview releases. And I can tell you that ever since I got my my first hands on this Linux installation, and I and I would fire it up and I'd point tiny TDS at it or I'd point the active record adapter at it, nothing failed. Not e- not even from the earliest pre-release where nothing failed. Wow, that's pretty amazing. That's that's, so amazing. that's awesome. Nothing what? had to change. Yeah. One other thing I'll just add is that Microsoft has Docker images for SQL Server. So if you don't want to set it up, um, you can just pull in one of those Docker images and it, it'll basically be set up for you. It's made contributing to both the TinyTS project and the adapter very easy. For now, we uh, we maintain forks of those uh, those Docker images that precede the schema for both the TinyTS and the Rails adapter to do the tests on. So that means anybody could come to our project now, uh, run a command, and get the test up and running. And it's a there's no guessing game, right? There's no like you have to be an administrator of your box. You have to boot up Windows in a VM. You have to right click here and there and do this. It just works. Nice. So we recently changed the uh, both of all of the repos now actually test with Travis uh, Circle. Uh, redundant and app there and it's uh we've got three layers of ci testing just to hit it from every angle and it, it wouldn't have been possible without the docker images in fact i i would dare say that if if those docker images didn't come out if they didn't put it on linux it would be hard for me to maintain the enthusiasm to keep developing on it Yeah, I use uh, Tiny TDS at work, you know, for a project where we have a SQL database, and you know, it's all in a Windows environment. But we needed to be able to communicate with this database, you know, and the application didn't have any built-in APIs. So I basically wrote a uh, Ruby service that just kind of runs in the background, and it'll pull data out of the SQL Server database, translate it into a uh, format, and then load it into a, another API. So, you know, I've been using Tidy uh, TDS for a few years now. It's been wonderful. So thank you for all your work on that. Thank you. Yeah, we're really happy with the performance of it, too. It, um, I believe when I haven't done any benchmarks on it in a while, but when we initially developed it, it, um, it outperformed ODBC by at least a, a factor of five or more. And it's surprisingly easy Um so there's a couple things that I think is when I wrote the gym, one of the things that I really liked about it is that at the C layer, we do all the coercions of a SQL server type to the database type. So the idea here is, is that once you get the, the data back from the raw connection, there's no coercion needed. If you have a decimal with certain precisions, you get the right big decimal object back. You get the right float back. You get the right string, everything. And it meant that we were able to be really fast on this stuff. And you would be very surprised to find out how many raw connections, whether it be MySQL, Postgres, still return strings for everything, which really make Active Record work a lot harder. Yeah, that's very true. It's one of the things that I think is really cool about the way your stuff works. And that, that was just a guess, right? To me, that it felt very natural that if I was going to write a gem that pulled something from the database for Ruby, 
that it would return Ruby objects back. And uh, it gives me a lot of empathy. Uh, I think we all have to make judgments of, of you know, hey, uh, this code that I'm looking at, this way this thing works, uh, and we forget about the legacy or where things have come from. Um, and it's really helped me sort of be very empathetic to these other adapt or these low-level uh, C extensions that connect to databases. They've been around for so long um, that we d we don't think about the shortcomings or where there might be some really big additional wins for the Ruby language. So I'm kind of curious. I mean, you mentioned that you do a lot of this work in C. So how is the project actually organized? Um, you know, if somebody went and looked at the repo and, you know, wanted to kind of figure out how you've arranged things and some of the decisions you've made as far as designing the gem, what are they going to find? And, and why did you do it in that particular way? Well, with the um, the identity of the overall things with Ruby and SQL Server is under a GitHub username called Rails-SQL Server. Uh, everything related for connecting with Ruby to SQL Server is under that account. The two biggest projects or repositories under there is the Tiny TDS one and then the adapter. Uh, Tiny TDS itself is uh, organized very simply. I actually borrowed heavily from Brian Mario's work of the MySQL 2 gem. It was almost a, a direct copy. You basically have a client, uh, you instantiate the client, and you get result objects back. It doesn't do much more past that. In fact, um, I think really it's just going to be those two files. It's two C, it's two headers and two uh, two implementations, and you got client results, client results. The, let me think. If you looked inside of the source code for how Tiny TDS is written, you might find about 15 to 20 functions for each one of those files. It's very small. If you were to actually read the, if you were so inclined to read the database library manual, it's about 800 pages of functions. DB library, the protocol to talk to SQL Server is huge, but you really don't need most of it. And in fact, uh, we fight the the urge to try to build things in that just really doesn't make sense um, uh, for us. We we try to yield everything to uh, to SQL. If you need to do it, just issue it to SQL. Don't really lean on uh, the the raw connection. The adapter, uh, it's pretty much going to be organized like any other project. Now, do you have to do any special gymnastics to make it hook up to Active Record? Because you mentioned that before. How do you mean? So, for example, a lot of times you'll have like the MySQL 2 driver and then there's some other adapter from the, the basically the driver for the database to make make it easy for Active Record to connect to the database. So is there glue code there or does it just talk directly to the uh, driver? So in the adapter itself, there's only about two functions that talk directly to the low-level connection. And basically, they'll they'll issue the commands uh, and then just to return the results back. And I believe every database adapter, when it's returning, uh, whether it be from select all or execute, it has to return an active record results object. And then this will be, uh, it's just basically turning a hash or an array into mm -hmm. uh, some key value pairs that then uh, will be fed back further up through active model and eventually active record. Okay. Were you thinking more about like the, um, and I think that's what most database adapters do. So 
if you say, hey, I want to use, um, uh, if my database.yaml says I'm connecting through the MySQL adapter, the MySQL adapter will automatically require the MySQL gem as need be. And with our adapter, since we've had a history, right now the only connection mode we support is TinyTDS, but there actually is talk about including some other uh, some other low-level connection modes, specifically the JDBC one. So, Ken, I have a totally different kind of question to ask you, if I can. Um, how much time does this, uh, the stuff that you do, how much time does this take to to maintain? Like, what is what does that look like in terms of like in a typical week? Do you just like spend a few hours on it every week, or does it kind of go in bursts where you have to spend a bunch of time on it? Is it just a little bit of time? Is it a ton of time? I'm curious about all that stuff. It's definitely bursted with Rails releases. Uh, 4.2 was a big hurdle that took a, at least a good six weeks of almost like four to five hours a night just plugging away at it. Uh, Rails 5.0, not so much because uh, there was a lot of work done in 4.2 under the hood to make 5 work better, uh, specifically the tight system that Sean Griffin built in. 5.1, I've just started on that work, and it's, I can't really say, but my guess would be it would probably be uh, only about a couple weeks of a few hours a night getting that nailed down, maybe a lot less. Um, but in general, it's it's really on cruise control. I um, I don't know, I'd like to think I was a good programmer, right? And the we don't really get a lot of issues on the adapter itself. Just most of them are issues that would be sorted out on just the developer's code, how they're doing things. Uh, we don't really get a lot of issues and it basically, uh, it basically runs on autopilot, mainly sometimes about an hour a night, I might look at some and I believe this is true for most contributors and authors of gems. Most of my time is actually just spent helping people and talking to them, not about writing code. Okay. Yeah, because I've thought about uh, either contributing to or starting certain open source projects, but I have a fear based on similar things I've done in the past where I, I start some project and it's almost like uh, it's almost like adopting a pet where <laughs> free as in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, and then it, you have to feed and water it uh, into the indefinite future, you know, and, and so I have that fear of participating in things for, for that reason. But it sounds like in your case, at least, um, the, the, your motivation has stayed high enough over, over the time that you've been working on it to make it, make it continue to be interesting over time. And you haven't gotten like sick of spending time on it. No, it, it definitely maintains interesting. And the, um, the free, of, free as in puppy is very true. It is, uh, <laughs> I, I'd like to think that I am really good at saying no to features. And I, I do my fair share, and I, I love that line. Free and puppy is the best way to divert uh, adding things, uh, pull requests where it's like, hey, uh, a good example would be, I need the adapter to reconnect. And here's a whole bunch of code that I did to make it reconnect and do some things. And please accept my pull request and then support this feature forever. And I've done that before, and it's just ended up. Um, I've, I've usually just ended up declaring bankruptcy on things like that, where I've made poor decisions of pulling in a feature at the next major release, just deleting them. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. yeah, I can see how that, uh, how that kind of thing could happen. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's interesting. Cause I'm, I'm kind of, I, I, 
became the I guess I adopted a puppy a, a few years ago. It's a it's a tool that I no longer use. I used it for a while, but I no longer use it. But I'm in sort of in the same boat where the majority of my time is saying no to people and in the nice, courteous way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that and that that that's the that's the part. I think I spend more time answering any answering pull requests than I do writing code too. So it's that sort of that same thing. He, the 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 real motivation I think when you're not when you're not working on a project anymore at least for me when you're not using it every day, but you're still maintaining it is the satisfaction that other people uh, receive from the work that you did. You, you realize that hey I'm actually helping these people with their problems and that's you know I, I said this before the podcast and I again I want to publicly thank Ken for all the help he gave me many many years ago keeping my my Rails and SQL Server stuff going and I'm glad that you're continuing to do that work today helping other people do the same thing i've recently yeah. learned how to uh, to double check uh to find users on issues and i'm going to go back and make sure i have not been bad to you <laughs> i'm really afraid <laughs> i'm going to go check my tone <laughs> you know and that's a good point all because you know when we start getting into those kind of feature requests or pull requests where people are saying like, Hey, we really need this in there, but it's not really globally beneficial. And it kind of turns a project. And I've seen this in multiple projects before where the development kind of turns into more of a client driven development where you have all of these one-off cases of saying, Hey, we need this kind of functionality, but it doesn't really fit the overall scope of the project. You know, that's when you know you really start getting into a lot more like spaghetti code and uh, just a really unmaintainable mess and much more technical debt. And it gets scarier the more you uh, with the project I'm on. It's a Node uh, live reload. It's one of the one of the most popular live reload plugins out there for for Node. Um, and it, when you don't use it, when you when I've moved to something else. So when you don't use it, it's harder to see if the requests that people are asking for are really global or not. You you really start asking other people to kind of vet them. I mean, you know, anybody else want this? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you know, I've been in those situations a couple of times on some projects, and you know, I I tell them like, hey, just fork it, and you know, if you want to keep up to date with the project, you know, here's how you can uh, merge in the uh, master branches, you know, down into your fork. Uh, you know those. Little one-off cases, you know. I think that um, they just they increase technical debt so much, you know, and it's not going to be widely used. But now you're you kind of bought it, and now you have to support it. Ken, I'm curious when you when you talk about uh, the, the 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 major the mail major Rails releases and and things like that. Just what are sort of some of the things that really cause really cause it the 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 upgrade to be somewhat more painful or more time consuming? What 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 kind of issues do you run into? Is it just uh, API changes to Active Record, or is it something more uh, something more complex than that? Yeah, that's a really good question because the. Um Are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby and Rails? I'm putting on a two-day online conference called Ruby Remote Conf. You can check it out at rubyremoteconf.com. Like I said, it's a two-day conference where you can come and listen to speakers and experts from all around the world talk to you about issues pertaining to Ruby and web development. We have an online Slack channel, a roundtable discussion on Zoom, and all of the talks are given over Google Hangouts, and all of the talks will be streamed to you live. Come check us out at rubyremoteconf.com.
changes to active record or is it something more, uh, something more complex than that? Yeah, that's a really good question because the, um, I always feel like, uh, SQL server and the Oracle adapter, we're like the front lines of rails refactoring pain. Um, I've heard statements before that it would be nice that when you write an adapter that you're only using public interfaces, but it's never the case. Um, we have to get in there, uh, override methods. We, we have to monkey patch. We have to, we have to do anything it takes to get our test screen. <laughs> and when, and, and this is not the fault of rails core or anybody that's writing active record code. When you have this project like rails and you have these, uh, three to four, uh, blessed cord adapters. When you're refactoring those things and you're like, say for instance, when you're Sean and you're refactoring the type system to be sane and beautiful, like it should be with these little tiny poros that wrap up, uh, simple types. Um, it's very easy to redesign the system and, and, and do what's right for rails, but it pushes a lot to the third party adapters to pick that stuff up. It, there's, um, there's just no easy way for us to go in other than say, okay, when the next major release comes out, the first thing I do is I'll just go look at the active record change log and I'll read everything. I'll read all the pull requests. Um, there's a section of the abstract adapter that I really like the best. It's called supports underscore whatever. Uh, you might see about a 50 of these methods about uh, does it support comments and, and table creation uh, and schema dumping. And you, you just look for these things and go, uh, what do I need to support? What do I need to build? What do I need to change? Right. Uh, a good example would be, I believe in five one, they're going to use big init rather than an int for a primary key. So you're only going to find that stuff. Uh, you're not going to find it through test failures because by default, they would probably make a method called supports big int and primary keys and just say false. And then in Postgres or MySQL, they would change that to true. And you would never see a failing uh, a failing test in SQL Server or maybe in the Oracle adapter. You really actually have to go share the experience of what Rails has been through, and then start trying to code to that. What is, is this has been going on for a considerable amount of time uh, now? And I always kind of wonder why is it that the 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 Oracle adapter and the SQL Server adapter are still sort of yeah you're on your own. You know, from 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 the standpoint of Rails, has there been any sort of bridging lately that's gone on to to give you all a heads up about what's going on, what's what's happening, or is it still sort of how oh, we change stuff, go figure it out? We've talked about it before. Uh, I believe Sean even mentioned that it would be nice if there was some way that we can make it so that as changes were coming into Rails core, we would run the uh, the SQL Server adapters, but. My personal feeling is that I would like to see something like that so that, you know, as uh, 5.1 is being developed and we're at a release candidate now, that I would um, that I would like to think that I have the time to put to the initiative and the systems in place so that when the changes happened, I would see them immediately. So I would start to know. But then again, that really relies on test failures. So in the case of like maybe the big end or another good example would be supports comments and schema dumping. You, I really wouldn't see a test failure, right? I would just see a degraded feature that wouldn't be offered to the users. So one thing that I've tried to take on, and I think I'm the only ad uh, adapter that does this, is that when you clone the SQL Server adapter and run bundle and then the tests, I'm actually cloning the Git 
repository for the entire Rails project and using that in my load path. So I am essentially running all the tests for active record as well as my additional tests for that are very focused for the adapter. Now, what that means is, is that I actually have some metaprogramming in place so that when there's a test that doesn't make sense for the adapter that's in Rails core, I try not to muddy the waters with their pull requests with things that sort of concern me, essentially putting if conditionals inside of the test cases more than there are already that says, okay, if the adapter is this, the assertion should be this, or if the adapter is uh, SQLite, it should be this. And what I will do is I will coerce said test either to either just ignore it completely or rewrite the implementation of the test where it makes sense for the, for the adapter. So in my mind, I would much rather for Rails core just to be completely independent of knowing about any other adapters. I would, in a way, I would like to see them remove all the conditional code from uh, their test suite that checks for Firebase or Oracle or even SQL Server and just say, hey, if you feel like uh, you want to be a third-party adapter, here's maybe sort of a guide that talks about how you might uh, set up your project how you might run your own test and the active record test, and then when the conflicts appear, how you might override that in, in isolation. Versus uh, it, it just feels to me like there is a lot of coupling already in the Rails code when it comes to this, and I would like to keep that lower. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it just, uh, you know, as someone that writes code all day, um, you know, even in a large company where you have uh, uh, clients or services and it's hard enough to to say to one side of the business unit, hey, I, you know, I might need this feature and to, and to keep my code from being tangled up with others. And I feel the less entanglement that can happen, the better. And so the, really the only thing I think we should do better from a Rails core perspective, not that I'm a member of that, is maybe to find a little bit more time to try to make that, um, maybe that's a Google Summer Code thing where we actually make those lines harder and we, and we rip out a lot of the stuff that has coupling in it. So I'm curious, what is the thing that you're most proud of as far as what you've put into tiny TDS? I'd have to say that it's hmm, awkward pause, silence. Um, It might just be the fact that it's so small and it does one thing, right? The best thing I like about what's in TinyTDS is what's not there. Um, I had to make a decision early on when we thought about making this gem about which way that we would use free TDS. Free TDS speaks um, two different implementations. It could speak ODBC, and that was as the uh, that was the the side that the Ruby ODBC gem spoke to. And then it can talk to DBLib, the DB library aspect of the protocol. Um, I feel like I took a big bet into saying that DBLib is the way that I want to talk to the database. And my gut was that even though I didn't know this, I felt like, hey, there's probably large banks out there that use SQL Server or some sort of organization, and they're writing C code, and whatever have you that's not Ruby, and they're talking to DBLib, and they're talking this low-level protocol. And I took the bet, without knowing too much about it, that that Microsoft would maintain that protocol. As they started coming out with Azure, 
uh, I was rewarded with that. Everything just with Tiny TDS just worked. And as SQL Server and Linux came out, again, I was rewarded with that. I didn't have to re-implement anything under the hood. So the I think the best thing that's in there was just sort of this guess, this decision to, to bet on the protocol and to make an assumption that talking to the database was something that was not going to change over the wire and that uh, a good company would do whatever they needed to to make sure that that protocol was was safe. So how do you go about making the decision of uh, when to drop a version of SQL Server support? In the adapter, we've done that. So I think uh, the latest Rails 5 adapter only supports 2012 upward. And that decision was easy. It was pretty much limited and offset. So SQL Server never had this notion of windowing functions that other databases have to limit your your window of a particular SQL set. Uh, with MySQL, it was just, it, it's an afterthought. Limit, offset, at the end, done. Uh, one of the things that the adapter had to do for a long time, and I, and I bet you this was the source of many issues, was we had to take a look at the SQL string. There was no AST that could solve this problem. And look for an intent, and then decompose that intent and put it back together again with sort of an inverse sort of uh, sort. So you'd have to take the original SQL, you'd have to look at the limit, what you were selecting, what the projections were, and then you'd break it apart, and then you'd run that SQL twice and invert the order. <laughs> and once uh, I found that SQL Server 2012 had limit and offset through what was called fetch and offset, then it was just pretty easy. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I value my life. I value my free time. <laughs> I'm not yeah. going to support that. And I guess, luckily, SQL Server 2012, its uh, mainstream support ends in July this year. So, ah. you know, you have that kind of going for you, too. Yeah, so I've never really... I felt like staying in the shallow end with, um, with features, right? Thankfully, Rails doesn't push a lot of sort of complex SQL down. It's just... Uh, it's very high level, so I've never really had to consider dropping databases before. Uh, and I think it's only happened twice in the lifetime of the project. Uh, one was for 2005, I can't remember why, and uh, the other was for 2012. Thankfully though, because DB library is a protocol that goes all the way back to Sybase, TinyTDS can talk to anything from Sybase all the way up to Azure, and it doesn't matter. So what's what's coming down the pipeline next for um for tiny TDS? Hopefully nothing. Um <laughs> I mean honestly it's it's one of those great things where um most of the most of the conversations that I've had to support on GitHub are basically just simple little issues. Um the I do believe we're pushing for a 2.0 release, and that is to fix an architecture decision where we try to, if you didn't have uh, libraries like FreeDDS installed in your system that it would need to compile against, we were accidentally trying to install that for you through a, a gem called MiniPortile, uh, which is just basically a small package manager written in Ruby. But other than the architecture of the gem, we really don't want to change a lot. We want to make it uh, better for uh, Windows versions. So we've always had this struggle to where we really can't assume that Windows users have all the systems and pieces in place to compile gems natively, whether that be DevKit or something else. So we always distribute pre-compiled binaries 
for every version of Ruby for the uh, Windows platform. And so if anything changes in TinyTDS, it's always to try to make that better, uh, to try to get to try to be good stewards to the Windows community, to get them involved with Ruby, uh, to, 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 to let some Ruby and or Rails into the infrastructure so that you can take what you have on SQL Server and hopefully just you know introduce something that I think is a, a good platform uh, in the organization. Yeah, you saved me a lot of headaches with that effort, so thank you very much. <laughs> Now, before the show, we were talking about what we wanted to talk about, and you mentioned prepared statements, and I'm not 100% sure what those are. Do you want to explain what those are and then um, how they would be used in a Ruby um, in a Ruby app? Yeah, I'd love to. I think the um, this would be a question about, like, so previously you'd asked what was the best thing that I had liked about what had happened in TinyTDS. And to me, this is the best thing that has happened for the SQL Server adapter. I can't remember when, but I think Rails 3.1 introduced this concept of prepared statements. And, you know, I am not a database administrator. So at any point in time, if anybody thinks I'm uh, uh, talking out my butt, you might be right. But the the idea of prepared statements is that dynamic SQL is bad. And if you can give a query to a database and it knows how to execute that plan, then it will perform that better because it knows it's rerunning the same plan to uh, to talk to the database. So that's a good idea. That's one of the reasons that stored procedures are better than, say, dynamic SQL. Rails only issues dynamic SQL. Errol builds the SQL string for us, and we just send it right down uh, to the database. Prepared statements allow us to tell the database that a SQL statement that's being sent to it is basically the same, but the parameters are different. And because of that, it's able to reuse these uh, statement caches and plans uh, to talk to the database and return your results back to you. Um, one of the things that I really liked about our decision in the adapter, it, I took this inspiration from Rubinius. And I remember the statement was made like, you know, Rubinius is, we're always going to use Ruby rather than C when we can. And in the SQL Server adapter, I was like, how about rather than using anything that's clever at the raw connection mode, whether that be JWC, Ruby JWC, or Tiny TDS with the DB library, we just use T-SQL. So in any case that we're presented with a problem, we just use SQL rather than um, the protocol to talking on the wire. So DB library does not have prepared statement support, but T-SQL does. And it pretty much revolves around this concept of giving a string to a stored procedure with the parameters, and the database will take care of the prepared statement for you. Can, can you explain that a little bit? I don't know if I followed that last bit. So I think if um, I haven't done some deep analysis of how the Postgres gem does it, but I was doing a little bit before the show. And it will actually, so when it prepares a statement, so let's say you have um, uh, select everything from users where ID is equal to one. So if you just sent that SQL right down to the database, it's not prepared, it's dynamic. So if you change the one to a two, it's as far as the database is concerned, that is a completely different statement to execute uh, because it doesn't know the one and the two are really just an, a parameter. 
prepare statements will basically take that one and two, uh, whatever predicates you might have, uh-huh. and turn them into a parameter. And in the case for, say, the Postgres adapter, it will, the low level PG gem will make a request of the server to prepare that statement and get a result back so that you know that the, and I believe it has an ID of some sort of token, so that it knows that when you issue the statement, it will reuse a certain plan in the database. Okay. For a SQL server, what we do is, is we save on the need to talk to the database to say, hey, prepare this SQL for me. We give it the prepared uh, the SQL in such a way that it actually can reuse it. And SQL Server, I don't know if it's the only database that does this, but this is one of the things that really keeps me interested in the project. It, it's an amazing database, and it it as you explore it, you'll find these things that are just have been there for a long time, and that just amaze you. the The only way I can think of explaining uh, with my level of understanding of how SQL Server does prepare statements with the method that we utilize with this uh, stored procedure called SP Execute SQL is it's like memcache for statement plans. It's in the database. You, it manages it. It knows how many times you reuse it. It will, uh, when there's memory pressure, it will uh, make decisions on a cost-based approach for when to uh, remove it from the procedure cache. And you really just don't have to think about it, just as long as you uh, format your SQL in a way. Cool. Yeah, the third... They're a great way to get a little extra performance out of your out of your uh, your backends. Yeah, there's a um, I wrote a blog article for Engine Yard a few years back, and I can include that in the show notes as well. And it kind of talks into that. There's actually even SQL where you can you can ask the database what it has in the plan cache. You can look at all the statements that have been given to it, how many times they've been reused. Um, you can flush that cache like a. Like you probably shouldn't flush memcache in production, but you can if you want it to. These, uh, these are the things that have been in SQL Server that just really impressed me. I remember back in um, and using SQL Server 2000 when MySQL didn't have support for DDL uh, transactions, something that was always present in SQL Server. And it, it just, you know, it's, it's not a database I would go out and buy, from, you know, hey, I'm starting a company. I got a startup idea. Let's get on to SQL Server. To be honest, I probably wouldn't choose SQL Server, but maybe with the Linux release, I actually might now do that. It just has so many features that are just sitting there under the surface. And whenever you have a hard problem, it rarely fails you to give you a good answer. Cool. Anything else that we should dig into here before we... uh before we go to picks? I'm not thinking of any. Let me see. No. Let me go to the doc. Or anyone else. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. 
Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you, and on Hired you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. And if you sign up today using the show's link, that's Hired.com slash RubyRogues, you can get double the normal hiring bonus. That's $600 instead of $300. So go check them out at Hired.com slash RubyRogues. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Uh, Dave, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, sure. I have two picks. Uh, one is Mattermost, which that is a uh, can be a self-hosted Slack alternative. I've been playing around with that quite a bit lately, and you know, it's just it works and it's a lot of fun. And my second pick is called MailDev, which is a SMTP server plus a web interface for viewing and testing emails during your development. So it's a great way to test responsive design on emails, and you can see the HTML and the plain text counterparts, uh, and also download attachments and stuff. So it works right out of the box, and it's pretty quick and fast. Nice. Jason, what are your picks? I just have one pick, and it's actually a pick that I've picked before, but it's uh, it's so nice, I'm going to pick it twice. It's called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Um, I've listened to the audiobook a couple times. I'm reading the the print version right now. It's just a really interesting book. It's about um, this guy and his son and a couple of the guy's friends that go across the country on a uh, motorcycle trip. And this guy, uh, he's he's like a complete genius, but at one point he went crazy and they gave him some kind of a electric shock designed to basically erase everything in his brain. And so he kind of started his life over again. Um, and it's based on a true story, I understand. So super interesting book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I was told to read that book and I still haven't figured out why. Yeah, and if you ask me, like, hey, what is that book about? Like, I can't really tell you exactly. Or, like, why do you like it so much? I don't know. It's it's just really interesting. I'd highly recommend it. I would, too, and I still don't know why, either. I'm glad other people feel (laughs) that way. Nice. All right, Brian, what are your picks? I just have one pick this week, uh, and because it's top of mind, I'm taking over an old, old Rails application. And I found a gem called Bundler Audit, which is recommended to me by a friend. And, oh, man, this is great. Uh, I can go through uh, the gem file for an application and point out security vulnerabilities in the application's gem file. 
uh, in the in the bundles listed there. So I can see uh, it. It will tell me when I run it against my gem file. It will tell me uh, any CVEs that are uh, applicable. This this particular application says there's a CVE in sprockets that says it allows arbitrary file existence disclosure in sprockets, and it tells me what versions uh, I can upgrade to to avoid that problem. Uh, it's really nice when you're you know when you're taking over an app and you want to get get a good starting point to see where security vulnerabilities might be. Uh, it also seems to be something that could be pretty useful on uh, on your current applications too. Very nice. Um, I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. Um, the first one is just uh, Disneyland. So next week, um, that's why I'm not going to be here. I'm taking my family to Disneyland. Um, of course. I am actually going to miss two days of Disneyland with my family because my wife scheduled it over a, a paid training that I'm going to in Austin. So I'm driving to Anaheim, spending half a day in Disneyland, and then flying to Austin, and then spending two days in Austin, then flying back, um, and then spending another day and a half in Disneyland before driving back to Las Vegas, where I will be going to another conference. Um, if you're sort of entrepreneurial, I'm going to pick that conference as well. It is called MicroConf. Um, and I know I've picked it on the show before and, uh, I saw Jason there like two years ago. Um, but anyway, it's a great conference and, uh, this year they have both, uh, a growth and a starter edition. So if you're new to entrepreneurship and want to figure that stuff out, go to the starter edition. And if you have a somewhat established business and you're looking for ways to grow, then go to the growth edition. So I'm, I'm really digging both of those. And then the last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to pick um, AWS Lambda. Uh, now, if you're not familiar with that, maybe we should do a show on it sometime. Um, but it's a system where you can put functions in in a number of languages. Um, off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure they support... I know they support Node.js because that's what I'm writing my stuff in. They also support Python. I think they support C Sharp and... Java, and I believe they are either working on or already support Swift as well. So um, anyway, it's a cool system. So I just have a really small function that makes an HTTP call to uh, Slack room and invites people to Slack. So um, if you go to um, rubyrogues.com slash parlay, that's P-A-R-L-E-Y, um, we have had a forum for the last several years that you could join up with. And uh, anyway, the forum kind of turned into a ghost town. Um, you know, people just got busy and, you know, so we, we didn't maintain it as rogues. And then we had a panel changeover and I just haven't pushed it with, with the current panel. Um, but anyway, I'm going to move um, Parlay over to Slack since Slack has threads now. And so people can go and follow threads on specific topics and things like that. So... Anyway, um, that all works by somebody you sign up. Um, my system makes a call to a webhook in Zapier. Zapier hits AWS Lambda, and bada bing, bada boom, you're invited in. So anyway, it's it's really cool, and I'm I'm just thinking of all the possibilities out there for that kind of thing. So yeah, I've I've been really really happy with um, with AWS Lambda. It took a little bit of figuring out how to do stuff. Um, you know, cause you have to, especially since I pulled in a couple of NPM modules. So then it was like, okay, how do I get that stuff in there? But it, it was pretty straightforward and I'm using a framework called serverless, uh, which is a JavaScript framework. Um, so anyway, lots of stuff. I know I rambled on for a second, but yeah. Um, so go check out Ruby rogues parlay and, uh, just know that your email address is being pushed through Amazon Lambda to get you invited in. Um, and I'm also putting up a channel where it 
it posts uh, high quality stories periodically to the channel and things like that. So if you're looking for a good place to stay caught up, make connections and things like that, then that's kind of what I'm setting up there. Um, and I should also mention that once I have uh, 50 people paying to be in there, um, my intention is to start inviting speakers to come talk to us once a month on a sort of webinar setup that'll be uh, restricted to Parley members. Um, I'd like to pay them, and that's why I'm waiting for 50 paid people. But I already have a handful of people in there, so we're well on our way. Um, and yeah, those are my picks. Ken, what are your picks? Yay, let's see what I can do here. So I've got two. Uh, the first is I would like to promote a regional conference here in the Hampton Roads area. If you ever wanted to go to a conference, go to the beach uh, and have a general good time in the springtime in the in this resort area. There's a conference called Revolution Comp uh, at revolutionconf.com. It's platform agnostic. It's run by a super strong community here of .NET group and our super, super strong Norfolk JS Ninja Cats. And it's got speakers coming from all over the country and I'll be there. Uh, I helped organize a little bit of it last year, but this year I just want to participate. So if you ever get to Hampton roads, you want a grilled cheese sandwich, uh, you want to hang out with some good people and some startup community in this area. I recommend uh, RevConf. The other is CSS. So this may seem weird, but I love doing front end development. I love doing database work. I love doing front end development. And I think after about 10 years of writing CSS, I finally got good at it and I'm out to spread the news. So if you haven't yet picked up on it, there are some frameworks for how to write your CSS, not ways to render them like SAS or less, but uh, Beam or Suit. And I'm a huge fan of Suit, uh, the simple naming conventions, and I'll share some links to it. But basically the documentation for Suit and how to write CSS to organize components is only about 10 to 12 paragraphs. It is super small, infinitely complex, and I think it's really made me a better front-end developer. Whenever I've thought I was good at CSS, CSS has taught me otherwise, so. It will. It knows <laughs> you like, it knows when you, what you don't know. It can smell fear. That's right. <laughs> Wait, you're not supposed to exclamation important everything? Not everything. <laughs> Only the parts that you want to make it impossible to deal with. I mean, um, <clears throat> you want to override stuff with. There the is only, such... Yeah, put, make sure you put your important declarations right on the tag in a style attribute. People love there, that. There is such a thing as CSS specificity, and I believe there's a Star Wars specificity chart where the Emperor Palpatine is uh, goes all the way up to the end line. And I did a presentation for our work. Some of our styles were uh, two Stormtroopers... Five Darth Vader's and two Palpatines. It was ridiculous. <laughs> wow. Yeah, if you if you put "bang important" in there, you either better have a good reason, or I will I will hurt you if you put it in my project. <laughs> All right. Anyway, um, thank you for coming, Ken. If people want to follow up, check out these projects, follow you on Twitter, you know all that fun stuff. What do they do? Meta skills. You'll find me. All righty. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up then. Uh, thank you, Ken, and thanks to our panel for coming. And we will thank catch you, you all me. next week. All right. Thank you. Talk to y'all later. Later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>